Sometimes when you're scrolling through the news on your computer or your phone or maybe even in an actual newspaper, you see a story that shocks you. An especially weird or horrifying incident that captures your imagination for a few moments and usually is soon forgotten. In 1978, one of those stories happened in Trenton, New Jersey, and made its mark on history as one of the state's most gruesome and inexplicable crimes. This is the story of that crime, and also about what happens after the cameras and headlines are gone. This is a story about the people who can't turn the page or scroll away from the story, but have to live with the aftermath every day. It's forgotten history. there is a description of a very violent crime and an attempted suicide in this episode. As always, on the show, we tell intriguing and obscure stories from central New Jersey's past. Joining me to co-host today are my colleagues Bill Sanservino, editor of the Ewing Observer, West Windsor Plainsboro News, and the Lawrence Gazette, as well as Sam Scarata, editor of the Bordentown Current, Robbinsville Advance, and Hopewell Express. I'm Dick and Hyatt. I'm Bill Sanservino. I'm Sam Scarata. And welcome to Forgotten History. Friday, December 22nd, 1978, was clear and cold in Trenton. By 4.10 p.m., the sun was already low in the sky. A long winter night was about to begin. Workers at the State House were preparing to leave for the holiday weekend. Among those was Trooper Thomas Clugston, who was getting ready to change out of his uniform and go home. Hundreds of workers were leaving the building and were witnesses to what happened next. A two-door Oldsmobile made its way down West State Street. Suddenly, the car turned off the road, drove up the State House steps, and crashed into one of the marble pillars at the building's grand entrance. The noise brought state troopers who were stationed there running to the scene. The first to arrive was Peter Weiss, who approached the car from the passenger side. Inside, he saw the driver, a stocky middle-aged woman with white hair. As he approached, the woman threw a paper bag out the window. The woman said, Merry Christmas! This is what you wanted! That's, that's never a good sign. I mean, if somebody's throwing paper bags of stuff out of the, uh, the window at you, it uh, it's, it's probably, probably doesn't bode well. The bag and whatever was inside flew past Weiss and landed on the ground. There was a stick protruding from the bag, and an American flag was attached. Weiss reached into the car and unlocked the door just as the woman picked up a razor from the passenger seat and began slashing at her throat. She had made two cuts before Weiss grabbed the razor away from her. Meanwhile, two other state troopers kicked in the driver's side window and grabbed her from the other side. One of those two troopers was Clugston, who was interviewed seven years later about the incident. The woman told him, Call my mother. Clugston asked where she was. She replied, She's right outside. He asked the other troopers if there had been anyone else in the car. That's when it dawned on him. The bag. Inside the paper bag was a green plastic garbage bag. And inside that bag was the head of Julia Zielinski, age 78. That's so, like, cinematic. Like, I can, like, see, like, the camera zooming (laughs) in on his his face and, like, oh, my God, the bag. Like, in Jaws. There were uh, bystanders who started screaming, it's a head, it's a head. So that must have been a pretty memorable scene. 
Yeah. This is where the story ends for most people. Like, most of the time, this is the story that you get. Like, there was some, some lady drove her car up the steps and threw a head out the window. Right. But Among I, us. <laughs> yeah. I, it's just what, yeah, it happens all the time. And, uh, you know, it's easy to get confused because there were so many head-related um, incidents in the annals of Trenton crime, like the one headline. The head that was found on the Hopewell Golf Course that yeah. tested positive for AIDS. and the, uh, Head had feels, AIDS. Yeah. The head had AIDS, <laughs> yes, the famous uh, head had AIDS. And this, this was not a head had AIDS. Um, but like I said, you know, mostly that's the end of the story. But the Trenton Times actually did a lot of reporting on this and found out the whole series of events that led up to this. That was back when they had actual reporters. Right, um, right. What's a reporter? Yeah. How, how many how many people are working in Mercer County now with the full-time job of reporter? Uh, how many people are in this room? Yeah. <laughs> Plus Bob out there. Yeah. yeah. But even us, like, we have, we're editors, so we can't, we right. don't spend That's all true. our time yeah. reporting. Well, no, they, they don't really have reporters yeah. anymore. They just have yeah. freelancers and editors. The amount of uh, work they did in this would be very difficult to do now with the resources that we have. But anyway... So the police put the driver in a straitjacket and took her to Mercer Medical Center. Uh, there are pictures of her when she was being loaded into the ambulance, and she was totally catatonic. She had her eyes closed, and she was, just wasn't responding to anything. She was just out of it. Imagine if that happened today, how many pictures of the incident would have wound up on social media? Oh, man, there would be video. Oh, my God, I would be... Mm-hmm. How many pictures of their, uh, actually of the incident were there out there that you found? I went to the library, the uh, state library, and I looked up old newspaper archives about this. And there were there were only a few pictures, and the quality of them in the reprinted newspapers is not very good. I'm sure if you went to the paper, you could get maybe uh, plates or something like that that had the uh, the actual photos. But there wasn't a picture of the head or anything like that, because yeah. they wouldn't have printed something like that. <laughs> yeah. So what followed was one of the shortest murder investigations I've ever read about. They immediately found her driver's license that said she was Jean Zielinski, age 48, and the police went to the two-bedroom bungalow in rural East Amwell. That was the address on the license, and there they found the body of Julia's mother. It was covered in a sheet, and it was slumped over the bath. Jean Zielinski had crashed into the state house at 4.10 p.m., and by 4.30, it was obvious what had happened. Jean Zielinski was treated for superficial cuts on her neck and then was taken to the state house basement where police asked her to confirm her identity. And that was the extent of the interrogation. There really was nothing else to, to say. Um, they sent her right away to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, which uh, if you have been subscribing to this podcast, you'll recognize that from the first episode. That was the same hospital where Dr. Henry Cotton once uh, tried to cure insanity by removing patients' teeth. The dentist. And it didn't work. Absolutely shocked that <laughs> it was not a viable solution. So this is obviously not a who done it. The only question was why did it happen? And so after many years of um, st- stories, I was able to piece together a timeline of what happened leading up to the murder. So here is the approximate timeline. Jean and her mother had lived in East Amwell for about seven years before the crime. Uh, her father, a, a truck driver had died about 15 years before, leaving Julia and her two daughters on their own. One daughter married, moved to New York, and had children, and pictures of those kids were adorning the walls of the home where Jean lived with her mother. Jean had dated but never married. Wait, how old was she? 48. And she was living at home? 
Uh-huh. Yeah, I already see things coming together. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> oh, my God. Horrible. Uh, so the, the women kept the house up well, and neighbors were impressed by how neat and spotless it was. Every Sunday, they went to a Ukrainian church in Trenton. And in the summertime, they gardened and worked on the house. And Jean was often seen outside running around on a lawnmower. For years, she had worked as a bookkeeper for the State Department of Higher Education. But she had been demoted and later quit, and she was working at home as a telemarketer, which has got to be an unbearably depressing job. It's a pretty depressing job, yeah. You've done it? No, I didn't do it, but my mother did it. And my mother called me once by accident as a telemarketer, and I hung up on her. So. <laughs> that that'll, give you, that'll give you some kind of hint of what, uh, <laughs> what the job entails. But she had been trying to improve her situation. She had recently completed an associate's degree in special ed at Trenton State College. Um, but neighbors said they often heard the two of them fighting, so there was some tension there. And she'd also had health problems. She had two years before had a hysterectomy, and then they said she aged rapidly after that. Like, she, her hair immediately turned white. And she didn't socialize much, but she would visit and exchange gifts with her relatives. And she would also go around the neighborhood collecting money for charity. So none of the neighbors noticed that she had mounting mental illness she was growing paranoid and delusional behind the scenes. And it turns out that's why she was demoted at work, because it, her like paranoia was starting to interfere with her ability to do her job. Yeah. And she began to think that her family, her neighbors, the government, and local merchants were all out to get her. And the mother started to become frightened. Uh, she told her other daughter that she thought Jean was going to kill her, but the sister did not take it seriously. She thought it was just like, oh, it was an old lady. You know, oh, it was like no, a, an old. exaggeration or something. Her bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the two of them would fight over different things. The neighbors said that Julie was critical of Jean for quitting her job at the state. And later on, Jean said that her mother also criticized her for not getting married. So that was causing some fights. Mm -hmm. But her paranoia was causing her to do crazy things too. Like she destroyed her own clothing and her food, which was one of the things that was really alarming to her mother. Mm -hmm. Toward the end, she stopped exchanging gifts with her family. And in 1978... Right before the incident, she sent her niece a letter saying there would be no Christmas that year. Oh, that's a foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, But nevertheless, she did keep up her appearances with her neighbors and sent them all Christmas cards. Mm -hmm. Her thoughts were growing darker and darker, and she was descending into depression and paranoia. And on the morning of December 22nd, she woke up with the urgent feeling to commit suicide. She felt like she had to take her mother along with her because they lived in the sticks and there was no transportation. And she, her mother would have to rely on transportation from neighbors who would cheat and steal from her. That's what she later said mm-hmm. that her thought process was. Mm-hmm. So she also formed another plan, which was a way to show the whole world what had been done to her by her mistreatment. So on that day, she advanced on her mother, and she was carrying uh, a blunt instrument of some sort. It was never identified, but it was possibly a hammer. And the mother didn't fight back. Instead, she just warned her not to do it. She said that you'll go to jail. And Jean replied that she wouldn't because she was going to kill herself, but the mother insisted, no, you won't, you'll go to jail. And at that point, she hit her in the head and strangled her, killing her. And when she was alone with the body, she briefly considered abandoning the second part of her plan and would later tell a reporter, I've gone this far, I may as well go all the way to the end. Right, right. Makes perfect sense. Yes. So she took the body to the bathtub and cut the head off with a saw and a razor. And on the way out the door... As she was leaving the house in her car to do the second part of her plan, she passed her neighbor, who was a man named Floyd Menchek, and he was the mayor of East Amwell. Mm -hmm. And Floyd waved to her, and she waved back. 
So, like, hey, see you later. <laughs> Toting my mom's head. See ya. So after he waved her goodbye, less than an hour later, he saw police swarming the house. How far is it from East Hamwell to... It's a, it's a, it's pretty far away. It's about 35 minutes. So this was a real plan she had. Yeah. And she was yet the destination in mind when... Uh... Yeah, and and, the, and she, she said that she picked that because the, the state house to her was a symbol of authority, and she felt that she had been mistreated by society and so she was just gonna go there and show them all yeah so less than an hour later he goes back outside and their cops are swarming the house and they were there for a few days collecting evidence and when they were done they asked him to clean up the crime scene and he made sure to do so before the relatives arrived they asked the mayor to clean up the crime scene yeah because he was the neighbor he was just around and they were like hey why don't you clean up the crime scene because the cops do not clean up crime scenes i don't know if you knew that i did not know that. Yeah, they leave. It's up to the victims to clean up the crime scene. Yeah, oh. there's there's companies out there. I think some of which you've even advertised in our uh, papers by Community News Service. Make sure you read them when they come out. <laughs> when they arrive at your doorstep. <laughs> no, we've. Uh, yeah, there's actually services who uh, do that kind of cleanup. Wow. There's, there's like because people you know murdered or not yeah. you know die or die alone and then the body may sit there a few days and it creates kind of a mess. So they have services that come in and clean that stuff up specialize in it sounds like you thought about that a lot <laughs> yeah I'm just a, a wealth of useless knowledge <laughs> so the, the relatives did eventually come by to you know deal with the house and among them was Jean's niece the one who had gotten the letter about there not being any Christmas and that was her name is Diane Lewer and she had found out about the crime by reading the newspaper she saw the article and then she said to her family Aunt Jean killed grandma and uh, oh my God. yeah, so she had she she was obviously traumatized by this. So the the family went through the house where they found open cans of food rotting in the cabinets, and they also found that Jean had slashed up all of her clothes, except for one fur coat. And the reasoning behind oh. this, she said, was because she thought the neighbors would steal all of her clothes if she killed herself. Oh my God! But did, she wouldn't need them afterwards. This is like the logic of someone who's like person, in the yeah. depths of a schizophrenic episode. Yeah. Um, or psychotic episode, rather. Um, so her trial was almost perfunctory. The defense argued that she was not guilty by reason of insanity. A psychiatrist testified that she had been acting like a zombie during the killing, and the prosecution did not contest that. They just said, okay, yeah. Yeah, definitely that's what happened. <laughs> so the judge found her not guilty by reason of insanity. There was no jury. And so instead of going to jail, like her mother said, she went to Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Mm-hmm. So now we're back at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Henry Cotton is no longer in charge. Instead of pulling people's teeth out, they're giving them psychotherapy and medication. And in Jean's case, it actually did seem to help her get better over time. Um, what was she diagnosed with? Paranoid schizophrenia. Okay. And every year in December, around the anniversary of the killing, she would go before a judge where her lawyer would argue that she had gotten better and she deserves more freedom. And every year they give her a little bit more freedom of movement. And... And this is an interesting part of it. In a criminal trial, you are presumed innocent, and the prosecution has to prove that you're guilty. But once you're committed to a mental institution, it's up to a judge to let you out. And the burden of proof is reversed. You have to prove to the judge that you're not a threat anymore. So Makes sense. And it's actually really difficult to do that. Cause I, I guess because no judge wants to be the one to let you out, and then you go and kill somebody. So people who get committed by a reason of insanity end up being institutionalized for, uh, one study said, about two to nine times longer than they would have been if they had wow. been convicted of a crime and sent to jail. Huh. 
What is like the criteria to prove that you're not unwell? Like yeah, I, that's a good question. What, like, well, the, in order to for somebody to be committed, they are usually found to be a, a danger to themselves or somebody else. So I would think at some level they have to prove uh, that they're well enough to not be considered a danger to themselves or to somebody else. And like Dickens said, there's no judge out there who wants to take the right, chance that right. she's just a good actor and she's going to go out there and right. cut somebody else's head off. It just mm-hmm. sounds like a broken process. Like This reporting is a window into that process that you don't see very often. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they actually had reporters go to the trials where she was being tried. And so she would have her doctors testify about her progress. And they did report that she was making progress over the years. So by this point, her story kind of faded from public view. Um, and it became kind of a legend among reporters and state troopers. They would tell all the newbies mm-hmm. about the day that someone threw a head at the state house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the tri- as I said, the Times would still go to the trials and report on what happened, at least for a few years. And she did, over time, earn more privileges at the hospital because um, the doctors said oh, she's in remission and she's getting better. Uh, in 1980, she was given permission to leave her locked ward and go on hospital grounds without an escort. Later on, she was allowed full ground privileges, and the article said that the doctor testified she had normal responses to the recitation of the history of her case. Now, what is a normal response to that? Right. (laughs) What does that even mean? What's a normal response to someone telling you about the time that you cut your mother's head off and threw it at the state house? Yeah, like, like, yeah, I remember that. Like, that's, oh my gosh. There is no normal response to that. Right. So I'm not sure what they meant by that. But it was uh, supposed to be a positive thing. Um, And in 1981, she was allowed to leave the hospital grounds alone between breakfast and dinner a few days a week. So that was surprising to a lot of people that this woman who three years earlier had done this terrible thing was now walking around town, pretty much. around uh, The the hospital is located in West Trenton, uh, Ewing Township. So she, she would be at the local restaurants and things like that. And in 1983, she got the privilege of living in a cottage on hospital grounds, which was a lot more independent than being on, a, on the ward, but it was still a long way from release. Um, in 1987, this is the next article that I found was four years later. She got a little bit more time off to go outside the hospital, and she was in the paper again because she donated $5 to a local charity drive. That was just, her name was happened to be on a list of people. Mm-hmm. During this time, she took classes. She went on chaperone trips to see one of her male friends who was a former hospital patient. And she was given permission to travel to New York City to see her niece. And this part kind of surprised me because, yeah, this is the niece who had communicated with her earlier mm-hmm. and who had gone to the house. And she decided to have a relationship with Jean, even though she'd killed her grandmother. Uh-huh. And she actually thought that justice had not been done in her grandmother's death and that Jean had not been punished enough. The niece? Yeah, the niece thought, thought that. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they exchanged letters and Christmas gifts. And Diane also felt that Jean never showed remorse in the letters to her. But it did actually help Diane, you know, get get past what had happened. Uh, She had been having nightmares. And then when she started talking to her aunt, Mm -hmm. she stopped having nightmares. So Mm -hmm. apparently it did help her a bit. And at the hearing in 1996, Jean had made so much progress that the judge said that he was considering recommending discharge the next time. And she was apparently anxious about being discharged because... She thought she wouldn't be accepted into the community or have enough money to support herself. She also got the news at that time that she was getting a roommate 
which she did not want. And it's unclear what the reason was for the, what happened next, but she did try to commit suicide again in 1996. And so she started, had to start over at square one with her privileges. Mm-hmm. So in 2003, Beth Fand interviewed her, uh, described her as a carefully dressed woman, woman with stark white hair, tortoiseshell glasses, and orthopedic shoes. Not really a very threatening figure. Yeah. She had slow speech and a slushy pronunciation of the letter S. And the reporter thought that she seemed unremorseful about the crime. The quote that she gave to the reporter was, It's been a long time, and that's in the past, and I just don't dwell on it. Thoughts come and go, but I don't sit and try not to bring them up or anything. But she had not had a psychotic episode in the last six years at the time the article was written. Mm-hmm. So she continued to go out into the community. At one point, she joined a group in Ewing called the Energetic Citizens Helping Others. But she apparently fit in well at first, but then... Someone realized what she, you know her history, and then she got a colder reception. So she was transferred to a different group where they explained the situation beforehand, and they welcomed her with open arms. Mm-hmm. They wanted to sort of help her reacclimate to society. And after that one article, I didn't see anything else about her. She died in 2011 at age 80, and she never was released from the hospital. Wow, wow. Yes. She spent almost half her life in captivity. Right, and if she had been convicted of a crime, the um, the probability was she would have been out much earlier. Kind of oh, around. my God, wow. So a couple of things about this story. One is that the Times covered the hell out of it. I thought, you know, it's, it's pretty impressive what, people, what the newspaper can do if they actually have staff. What's yeah. that? <laughs> I, I wonder what stories are like this are going unreported now because of the lack of reporters in yeah. the area. Yeah. I mean, all over, not, not just here. Even. Yeah. Well, our former editorial director, Rich Ryan, recently wrote a uh, a piece on his uh, blog site, RyanReports.com, <laughs> <laughs> basically talking about something called news deserts, uh-huh. and uh, he mentioned a uh, murder that just happened in Plainsboro, which uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with, where I guess a, uh, a co-worker of this woman, she went, she went, the woman went home from to, for lunch to her apartment in Plainsboro. One of her co-workers was obsessed with her, and he was waiting there, and he killed her. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was almost no information released after the murder. The police and the prosecutor's office said almost nothing. And uh, Rich's point was that, you know, back in, in the old days, reporters, there would have been enough where they would have done some follow-up. They might have gone and, uh, in through the neighborhood and try and find out uh, what happened, maybe done a little bit of investigating themselves because the authorities were giving up no information. So uh, I guess the point was, and I probably agree with it, that uh, papers don't have the staff or the time to uh, follow through on uh, stories because they're uh, you know, just moving on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing. The police were more cooperative. Like They actually talked to police officers who gave descriptions of what happened, whereas if you called the police now to ask about something like this, you get some PR person, and they would say, like, a vehicular incident occurred on the 100 block of West State Street. <laughs> yeah. Officers tactically ascertained that a subject assaulted an officer with a biological item, whereupon the subject was placed under arrest, or something like that. That is like, I feel like I've had that conversation yeah. before. Or it's either that, or it's like some like bureaucratic process where I can't speak to you unless the chief of police approves it, and it's, just, it's all... It, there's roadblocks just everywhere. Even, mm-hmm. if, even if you want to do something simple. It depends. It's different from police department oh, yeah. to oh, police yeah. department. And, uh, yeah, there's some that are pretty 
non-cooperative, and there's others that'll be really open with you. It also depends on how good of a relationship they have with the that's true with the, with the paper or with the reporters. Right. And I'm sure back then it was much easier to foster a close working relationship with the police department or the the town government because. Well, that, that was yeah. a job. Like, that's be, well, that's because back beat. then they, yeah, they, they, they would, didn't do, yeah, they would they didn't spend do the fake whole... news back then. They were <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Well, so th- that's kind of a sad story all around. Yeah. But I wonder, after all is said and done, if she really was a threat to anyone after she was stabilized on medication. I mean, th- I don't think that she was. And yeah. Like, just imagine if she had been receiving that care her whole life. Yeah. It's Well, it's interesting how... She got stricken with schizophrenia, it seems, pretty late in life, because mm-hmm. usually uh, schizophrenia, I know this because I've had some uh, instances of it in my family, and not myself yet, but um, usually it hits people in their like early to mid-20s, mm-hmm. um, so uh, instances of it happening to people that much later in life or for it to, to be onset are, are, are kind of rare, mm-hmm. or rarer than, than for you know, the instances of younger people mm-hmm. getting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think if she, like Sam said, if she had gotten help earlier, none of this would have happened. Right, yeah, you would hope that somebody would have, rec- today at least, we would hope that somebody would recognize it and then they would be able to get the help and medication that they need. So, like, what what did psychiatric care look like in the 70s? Or even, like, in the 60s? Like, were they still giving lobotomies and, like... <laughs> I think I don't know about lobotomies, but they were big on electroshock Electro therapy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure when to, what time the real effective antipsychotic drugs yeah. came out. Yeah. I think it was in the '60s. So I don't know. It, it's hard to say, but it, it certainly would have been better than yeah. Oh yeah. Than what yeah. would Nothing, actually yeah. happen. Yeah, effective treatments for for schizophrenia didn't really, and a lot of them had some really bad side effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, even going into the uh, the '80s and and early '90s, mm-hmm. uh, there were some drugs that came out uh, after that. Um, pretty much in the last 10 or 15 years that have, have been uh, much more effective at uh, helping treat schizophrenia. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess that's the takeaway then. If um, you know someone who is battling something like that, you know, reach out to them, try to get them help, and don't let it end in, in, uh, in another headline. All right. No pun intended. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. <laughs> oh. All right, thanks for listening. A quick clarification, earlier when we were discussing the process for being released from a psychiatric facility, that applies only to people who were committed because of the criminal justice system, not for other reasons. Uh, And there was a 2017 study that estimated there are about 10,000 people all around the country right now who were there because they pled not guilty by reason of insanity or because they were found not competent to stand trial. If you have any questions or feedback for us or stories from central New Jersey's past that you would like us to cover, please visit our Facebook page or send me an email at ForgottenHistoryNJ at gmail.com. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service and is recorded in our offices in beautiful Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Bermandon. Thanks for listening. Ingen vet att sorgen gör mig tung.